listening to a podcast from Light FM. Good morning, Ash and Terry here with you on The Light Breakfast. And today we start our week of recognising Pink October and a spectrum of survivors with a conversation about breast cancer with two specialists in the field from Prince Scott Medical Centre. A little later on, we'll be talking to consultant breast and endocrine surgeon Dr. Harjit Kaur. But to start things off, we're having a chat with consultant breast and oncoplastic surgeon Dr. Melissa Tan. Okay, so Dr. Tan, I suppose one of the biggest impacts of breast cancer is the physical aspect of it, breast loss, reconstruction, mastectomies. So how do you navigate this subject with your patients? Before I talk about breast loss or mastectomy and reconstruction, Mm -hmm. I just want to take this opportunity to highlight that with increasing breast awareness and breast screening, we are able to detect breast cancer earlier. Mm -hmm. Early stages of breast cancer it's, uh, are highly treatable with excellent outcome. And in my experience, majority, but it's around 60 to 70% of the time, patients can keep their breasts, either with simple surgical technique or a little bit more complex oncoplastic surgical techniques. Well, that means 30 to 40% of our patients probably need to lose their breasts based on two reasons usually. One is because it is considered the safest option. Mm -hmm. And the second reason is because patients choose to have mastectomy. So as a breast surgeon, I need to be empathetic. I need to be able to educate and empower my patient. They said knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, I must explain the diagnosis to the patient and the reasons for the treatment proposed. As you mentioned, surgery is only part of the journey in their breast cancer treatment journey. So if it comes to just mastectomy now, I would say you could have reconstruction. And this reconstruction can either be done immediately or in a delayed setting. So I think from what I understand then, that I suppose the, the most important thing when you are navigating breast cancer as a journey for anyone is having your patient understand every single aspect that's pertinent to their individual case for the best outcomes and and decision-making process that has to be done, both you as a surgeon, but also um, on their side as a a patient. And it's also important to involve their trusted loved ones. And this often could be their partner, mother, sister, or a trusted friend, because often I would like them to go home and have time to digest on all this information, discuss with their trusted loved ones and come back with the decision. Mm. Often it is a difficult decision to be made. but Well, it's a big decision, isn't it? I mean, it's not just a difficult one. It's a a big one. So, yeah, that makes sense. Could you give us a bit of an example of, of a scenario that you've kind of gone through with one of your patients where... You know, it's a big decision they have to make. It's a difficult situation. How you as a surgeon who's practicing that empathy and that understanding has helped your patient deal with this better, be it whether they, you know, they've gotten extra help from medicine to help them deal with the depression that they're dealing with in order to help them make better decisions like is there any sort of case study or situation you could give us from your experience on how you do your role as a surgeon and advisor to make it very 
medical, we do have another tool, what we call a holistic needs assessment tool, where we have a list of checklist concerns from physical, practical, all the way to sexual, family, relationship, financial, to even end of life preparation. I think with that, we can focus what really were their concerns so that we can focus on the areas where they're concerned about. Often they have multiple, but it's trying to focus our discussion so that we can come with some sort of strategies to deal with them. Mm. So you've mentioned depression. So sometimes just simple advice, like having a positive mindset, reading relevant useful material, joining community social support groups or speaking to some other breast cancer women who are going through the same thing may help. But in some situations, they may need a little bit more hospital help. That means involving a counsellor, a psychologist and very rarely a psychiatrist. Having said that, I had a very rare situation where I had a 40-year-old patient whom she's a, a business owner, self-employed counsellor with a young son. She struggled with the diagnosis of breast cancer and she went through chemotherapy before she can have surgery. She went into psychosis with suicidal ideation, okay. despite the fact that she was worried that she could not live through seeing her son growing into adulthood. Obviously, when we knew that was happening, the oncologist, myself, and the psychiatrists were working in close collaborations with our nurses to help her through the cancer treatment. Fortunately, she went through the treatment. She had her surgery. She did not need to lose her breast. I removed the cancer, uplifted both her breasts, and uh, she came back to clinic and she told me, myself and my son had given you a nickname. I said, what is that? Uh, Dr. Tan, the magician surgeon. <laughs> so that had put a smile to my face. I felt really humbled that I was able mm. to do what I was passionate about um, and make a difference to her life. Mm. And we all highlighted the needs of additional help by involving a psychiatrist. So what's your biggest advice for loved ones in this scenario? So we're speaking to the loved ones as the best they, ways they can support. We always encourage their loved ones come to our clinic so they're hearing the same thing. So they're not hearing the secondhand information from the breast cancer patient. Mm -hmm. Involve them throughout the journey with the patient consent, obviously. There are times they prefer to attend clinic themselves because they feel like they have to look after their partner as they feel they may not be as their partner may not be as strong uh, as the patient themselves. So it's very different case to case. I have patients who said, just remove my breast. I embrace who I am. Um, I don't want any reconstructions, the risk of potential complication, longer surgery. I just want to move on and finish my treatment and live a life that matters to me. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I have 80-year-old woman who comes to me like, I do ballroom dancing weekly. You know, I wear low-cut dress. I don't want this external prosthesis. I want reconstruction. I'm fit and healthy. Right. And truly, even though she was 80, physiologically, she was probably more like a 60, 70. And I had, I had bit mastectomy and given her breast re, uh, implant reconstruction and uh, she could 
carry on doing what she lo- loves doing, which mm. is ballroom dancing, three or four, five times a week. Love that. So sort of if it's going to be five family members in the same room with their loved one who's going through the breast cancer, you're all down for it, Dr. Tan, just like no. bring them in. No? <laughs> we have da- damage control. Um, right. Because as you know, everyone has a different opinion. Hmm. I think patient know patient knows best. They often know who to bring with them. Mm-hmm. Um, hence, I always put it down as the trusted loved ones. Right. Yes. I love that. And for family and friends who are close to someone who's going on this journey, what are the biggest no-nos? What do you see well-meaning, loving, supportive family and friends doing or saying that is the worst thing for the patients who are actually going through this? I think it's difficult because everyone is coming with the best intention but it's about timing. So we talk about the practical side, but there's also the emotional side. Practical side, we mentioned about attending clinics, running errands, cooking, cleaning, looking after their children, giving them some me time. But the emotional side could be as simple as sending them a text, a phone call um, to say that I'm here for you, but at the same time, respecting the patient's privacy but just letting the patient or their friends and loved ones, I am here for you. Regardless of any time of the day, I'm here. We are only a phone call away. There's no global boundaries nowadays. We have WhatsApp call, FaceTime. I think just giving that okay signal to, to the woman to say, I am here for you. But every now and then when you sense something is not right, we need to pull them out of their you know, loneliness as well, because they're never lonely. Even strangers can support them Mm. through this. So, like, what about those big no-nos? What do you see well-meaning family and friends doing that actually isn't helpful? Like, the the biggest culprit that you see? Yeah, I I think it's when they impose their own ideas onto the patient's head. For example... Someone would say, I don't think you need reconstruction. You don't need it. You're already 50, 60. Why would you need your breast reconstructed for? Whilst the woman deep down inside knows that breast reconstruction will help them to recover and maintain their femininity. And usually we can sense and get the signal. In time like this, we usually would say, would you mind if we just have a quiet session with the patient? We're going to go through something with her without you. So we need to take charge when we see situations. your like, patient being bullied. Love yes, that. And, and also highlight to their loved ones that ultimately it's down to her decision. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tan, for, for spending some time with us. Lovely, important work you do. Um, the holistic approach is, it seems like this should be always be the way. So uh, it's wonderful hearing it from you. Thank you. Thank you. It's the light breakfast with Asha and Terry. Good morning. Good morning. On Monday Motivators Today, we're starting our week of recognizing Pink October and a spectrum of survivors with a conversation about breast cancer with consultant breast and endocrine surgeon Dr. Harjit Kaur from Prince Court Medical Center. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Harjit. Here's the, the first question. There's been like a, a rising trend in women getting breast cancer at a at a younger age and Asian women at that. What are some factors that are contributing to this? 
Actually, we are seeing a global uh, increase in the sense it's not mm. just Asian women, it's also in the Western population. Mm. Uh, we are seeing younger women getting uh, breast cancer. Now, whether it's also because more and more younger women are aware and are coming forward to get themselves checked and therefore we are picking up the disease early is also possible. But more than that, I think it could also have a lot of to do with the lifestyle choices that uh, young people are making. You look at our lives these days, I mean, everything is becoming very stressful. Mm-hmm. Young women, they're working, you know, they are young mothers, working mothers, they've got a household to run, they've got work to look after, right. the stresses of working in a city. I think all this has some contributory factor as well. Plus, you know, with the lifestyle that we have, everything is fast and quick. Our diet is also being neglected. Mm-hmm. So there are right. more foods that are unhealthy that are being consumed rather than good home cooked food. Right. Uh, we are, you know, moving to the easy way out, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, fast mm-hmm. foods, uh, quick fix, put in the microwave, heat it up, things like that. I think there's a lot of things that contribute to it. There's no real clear cut, you know, factor or one cause that I can give you that right. is a cause for these uh, cancers happening in the right. young. As a follow-up to that, just want to check on this as well. What With the increase in the rising trend of women being diagnosed with breast cancer, is the survival rate also higher at this point? Yes, I think definitely. There are more right. women living with breast cancer than dying of breast cancer these days. Right. Because one, I think our awareness campaigns hopefully is hitting home a little. Mm-hmm. More and more people are aware. They are coming forward to get themselves scanned and screened. Mm. So we are picking cancers up early as well. And not only that, I think our treatment modalities have improved remarkably over the years. Mm. So, you know, the treatment in, in terms of uh, the chemotherapy, surgeries, mm-hmm. all this is actually much, much better these days. One of the areas that is of, I guess, huge concern and, and very much so in, in sort of a, from an Asian perspective is that of family planning and fertility in the context of a breast cancer diagnosis. How does it impact family planning? Well, as you know, that if you talk about just surgery, it doesn't have much of an impact on uh, family planning in any way. Mm -hmm. The main issue with the fertility problems uh, is actually the chemotherapy. When a patient requires chemotherapy, which invariably many of them do. So it's the chemotherapy drugs uh, that are the key factor that causes uh, problems to the fertility because it does affect the ovarian function. Mm -hmm. So once uh, you have an impact on the ovarian function, the uh, fertility of the patient automatically goes down because the quality of the eggs that they can produce is not so good anymore. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them can actually go into temporary menopause, so to speak, because Mm -hmm. the ovaries do shut down. So some may recover, some may not. Mm. So that's where the problem is. So it's not really an issue in the sense that it's not 100%. So there are ways to go about it. So uh, young women need to know that and understand that. So if they discuss that with their doctors, Mm. things can be planned very well for them. And is this part of the conversation? I mean, when you're talking about your treatment, does it depend on the stage or the type of cancer you have uh, and therefore the treatment? I mean, is this sort of something that's brought up right from the start? Yes, definitely. We're dealing with young uh, women who, you know, at the age bracket where they are planning to have children or yet let's say they are not even married yet and, Mm. you know, they would want to have children soon. Yes, these are definitely important things that we do discuss with them in their planning. So they actually um, are counselled 
as to what's the best option depending mm. on what they want for mm. themselves and uh, there are many many things that we can advise them and we sit down with them and go through all of them one by one before doing any kind of treatment for mm. them with the options available to preserve eggs or even embryos i mean that's a very expensive route to go down for for most women who have this so when you're talking about sort of fertility options what's the i guess best route to go down when if a woman is is concerned about this or is it is it going to be an expensive option full stop well it is an expensive option but it is uh, probably one of the only things available for young women to consider mm-hmm. and again it will depend very much on whether they are already in a relationship and married or whether they are not mm. if they are single and they have got no uh, regular partner with them then of course they are looking at egg banking because they can only bank their eggs healthy eggs and keep them aside uh, of course if they are with a partner then you talk about embryo banking mm-hmm. because that stands a much better chance of survival of a fetus later on other than that of course like i said uh, the rest is just to leave it to nature mm-hmm. there are many women who conceive naturally even post treatment without any uh, form of uh, you know ovum banking or embryo banking when it comes to the issues of being a, a mother for young pregnant mothers newly diagnosed with breast cancer how does it affect the baby's growth and when they start breastfeeding see um the important thing is to understand at what trimester a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer because the management varies tremendously mm-hmm. now if a lady is diagnosed with breast cancer in her first trimester most of the time it is a bit difficult because this is the time where we have to sit down with them and try to advise termination of pregnancy mm-hmm. mm. for the simple reason you can't treat a patient with chemotherapy drugs in the first trimester because it is a uh, teratogenic to the fetus right mm. so here to allow a woman to proceed with her pregnancy and move on to second trimester without any treatment is dangerous to the mother because the disease is progressing mm-hmm. so we usually talk about termination of pregnancy in the first trimester so that the woman can be treated completely important here in her treatment mm-hmm. if she's diagnosed in the second trimester here chemotherapy drugs are safe to use because the baby's organs have been formed so there's no risk to any kind of uh, abnormality uh, in the baby's uh, formation mm-hmm. so we can actually start chemotherapy and the chemotherapy will go on throughout her second trimester until she's partially in her third trimester and we tend to see how the baby goes the baby usually uh, progresses quite well as well and we try to uh, plan their delivery often with a elective cesarean section mm-hmm. so that we can have a controlled delivery of the baby for the safety of the mother and the baby and then we can proceed with surgery radiation and things like that for the mother well you can't do radiation therapy in a woman who's pregnant radiation is just a definite no when there's a fetus in a lady mm-hmm. so therefore you can't do their treatment early on in the pregnancy and then wait for 9 months before you decide to do radiation it doesn't work that mm-hmm. so that's the one of the main reasons why we talk about termination in the first trimester mm-hmm. because we know that the radiation will be planned right once delivery has taken place i actually have had two friends who were diagnosed whilst they were pregnant and because of the type of cancer they were able to wait to get into the second trimester to begin the treatment i suppose it it's a, a matter of if it's possible and also they they received 
really good counseling and support should termination have to be you know the option versus the yes. treatment is yes. that something that's that's sort of offered here definitely definitely all these uh you know sat down and spoken to the patient so at the end of the day the decision is the patient's with all the full information that she gets from us as to all the pros and cons of you know proceeding with the pregnancy or the termination of the pregnancy first because at the end of the day it's the mother's life that is most important i mean i know it's difficult to say that but between if you have to choose between the mother and the child you're obviously going to choose the mother mm-hmm. so many women uh, sometimes fail to understand that because they think it's the child that's important and then we've lost a lot of mothers after mm-hmm. delivery of the children Mm. and you know they lose their lives because they delayed their own treatment mm. so that shouldn't be the way either okay. uh, it's a very difficult situation so that's mm. why counseling and uh, it takes a lot of time with all the doctors involved to sit with the patient so that they are in the best of hands uh, covered by all the fields that's mm. uh, required in her management plan and how then does sort of breastfeeding come to the picture if a, if a mother successfully gone through um, chemotherapy whilst pregnant given birth in a very sort of safe environment can you breastfeed if you're doing chemotherapy can you be breastfeeding if you're on radiation treatment or taking you know your post chemotherapy drugs well in the ideal setting of course like any pregnancy when you're when when you have a baby we would advise you not to be on any kind of medication when you're breastfeeding your child hmm. but here if the woman has had chemotherapy while she has a baby in utero uh, i mean of course it's not the ideal but it's relatively i would say it's relatively safe for the baby so if a woman chooses to breastfeed i suppose she can as long as she's producing milk and she can breastfeed we give them that opportunity to do it radiation of course does cause a uh, uh, difficulty in breastfeeding in some women so the, the breast that is being radiated may not function as well mm. but the other breast would function as usual so they can still breastfeed uh, you know uh, after delivery because mm. normally there'll be a gap that the chemotherapy uh, would have finished by the time they delivered and then radiation radiation doesn't have much of bearing because it's radiating the particular breast mm. if the woman had a mastectomy then there's no issue there's no function in that breast there's no breast but the other breast would function as usual so they can breastfeed there's no problem with that Thank you Dr. Hajit uh, sort of snapshot overview of some very important relevant questions that you know having spoken to a lot of survivors has been yeah. a very important aspect of their decision in in terms of choosing the right treatment plan and the right doctors who understand this as well so thank you so much Thank you for your time Yeah Thank you thank you so much On today's Monday Motivators we've been speaking with Dr. Hajit Kaur and Dr. Melissa Tan from Prince Court Medical Center on the topic of breast cancer because it is our week of mm. pink October and recognizing that in a spectrum of survivors all this week if you'd like to listen to this again or even share it with someone you think should listen to it you can find it on the Light Breakfast podcast that's on the Shocker You've been listening to a Light FM podcast on Shock that's S Y O K